Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Welcome back, everybody. This is the second episode of Future Hacker with Daniel Goodwin. So, Daniel, thanks for keeping here with us. You know, we talked a lot about the N50 project in, in the first episode. So now I'd love to know some of the crazy stories that you have, because what's interesting and what I loved to know about you is that you're not only involved in projects that are literally trying to move mountains, but from your desk, you actually get to go to the field. Like you, you go there, you go to very remote places, you travel. So you will actually get to see and to feel the real thing and to connect with people. So you must have a ton, tons of stories to share. If you could, you know, choose one or maybe a specific one that you think that somehow changed you or impacted you in a way you didn't expect. Yeah, <laughs> that's actually, yeah, that, that, that's a great question. And, and I think we only have a few minutes to answer it, but I've got plenty of stories I could share and I'll share them with any of your listeners, you know, on, on the side that they want. But I think a couple of them jump out and I'll tell you these stories. I mean, I've had a lot of like just personal impact stories of people that I've met and I still am just incredibly good, good friends with around the world. And I just had that privilege of doing that both on my own through my NGO nonprofit experience, as well as through Intel Corporation. Right. I mean, a couple of stories that jump out and it's specifically around technology and connecting, you know, people and enriching their lives is, you know, I'll, I'll take a couple of stories. First, install the computer lab in Southern Zambia, that shipping container that I shared with you in the first episode. You know, it's it's interesting to, to really try to understand what does the community need and want. And, you know, certainly from an education perspective at the high school, you know, we'd worked with them well in advance because I think it's important not to go out and say, you know, here's the Western world. Or here's the developed world. Here's what you need. But basically take a step back and say, just work with the community and say, what do you need? And, and help really look at it through their lens and, you know, through some people on the ground that are very familiar with it. But we had it dialed in pretty well with, with, the, with the high school and with the education material. But when we were leaving, there were a handful of us there and uh, from Intel. And we kind of got cornered by all the community members. And they were, they were very passionate about the computer lab and they wanted to know one thing. Can this lab tell us the current price of maize, <laughs> corn? Right. And it was interesting, like something we never thought of before, you know, but what a simple application. And here we have very, very rural, you know, uh, substance farmers who are, are growing corn, growing maize and, and selling it and keeping something to feed their family and their community. And, and yet their number one thing was, how do we know the current price of maize? And, and it comes out that like with a lack of information, they have no idea if people that are buying from them are giving them a fair price or not. And so it's kind of interesting. It's like very, very simple, simple idea. And so we ran a small contest um, with uh, the ATU back uh, this past fall with just entrepreneurs and just looking at, hey, what kind of applications are being developed? Could you develop? What problems do you have in these type of areas? And it was, it was amazing. We always call it, you know, it's local entrepreneurs developing local applications to solve local problems. But simple things like that, those kind of stories, you know, are kind of etched in my mind. It doesn't have to be this complex you know, let's go build a, a robotic rover to, you know, enhance the village or whatever. They, they don't care about that, right? But it's just simple things sometimes about, you know, how can I grow a better crop? How can I sell it for a reasonable price? How can I get information? And it's and that's fantastic. That was something that's etched in it. Just keep it simple. You know, the, the second thing is, 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 you know, never, never assume. I think that we know the impact of technology. And I'll tell you a story. We were doing a bicycle kind of drive with uh, FK Day from World, World Bicycle Relief back in, this is many years ago, probably 
2010 is my guess, maybe 2009. So, you know, a dozen years ago or so, we're doing a bicycle drive. And, and in this part of the world, you know, a bicycle is like, I don't know, a brand new Lamborghini or something, right? It's just like this amazing, just like a bike is just like, it's the world, it's transportation. And what it means in some of these parts of the world is that, you know, we were, we were helping them give into what, their, what they call their midwives and their caregivers. And they could actually cover like literally 10 times the distance and 10 times the amount of people they could interact with. And so it's life-saving. You don't think of bicycle often as life-saving, but it's life-saving. But so we were doing this bicycle drive with World Bicycle Relief, which is a great organization. And um, we equipped this particular community with about a thousand new bicycles. And again, they had to help pay for it. We weren't giving things away, but really helping, you know, sustain it and working with, with the local organization there. So they became, you know, really the heroes. And um, we decided one afternoon, we're going to go ride these bikes. We're going to go experience what these caregivers, midwives do each day. And so uh, three of my friends and I went off on this bike. We had an interpreter with us and we rode for a couple of hours. And I mean, in the middle of nowhere, just in the middle of nowhere. And we came across this small hut and there was this guy in this hut. And we're like, let's just go talk to him. You know, it's just the curiosity and, you know, curiosity feeds a lot of innovation. Right. And so we went to, to, to talk to this individual and we're in this mud hut with a grass roof and, you know, just kind of hanging out, nothing there, no power, no running water. And we were there for about, yeah, about 15 minutes, just getting to know this, this gentleman. And all of a sudden out of the blue, this cell phone rings. Right. And, uh, you know, you think like this part of the world, like, like, is this a luxury? Why does this person have a cell phone? And it was that old Nokia ring. So, you know, some of the listeners remember the old, you know, and you're like, what? You know, and you think for a second, like, am I being punked? You know, you know, someone can give me a hundred dollars for, you know, laughing, not laughing or something. And so this guy answers the phone. He talks on the phone for a minute and he hung up and he came back and he was talking to us or our interpreter. And the entire time I was kind of miffed, like, what's up with the phone? And I have so many questions. And so when we left, I, I sat out the interpreter. I'm like, hey, I got to ask about this phone. Like, is this a luxury item or what? And she was like, like, she understood even my questioning. She's like, I don't understand why you're even asking the questions on it. She said, that individual, for his occupation, he's a fisherman. And she said that that call that he took was from the docks. And the, the lake was a couple of hours, obviously, walking distance from his hut. And she said they were telling him when they were going to be there to buy fish so he could actually go fish to actually make a sale. And I was just perplexed. I never thought of it that way. She said, you know, he has top-up minutes, and he only take calls from the dock. And I was like, well, tell me. I said, how much will he spend in a given month to take calls from a dock, you know, on this? And, and it was roughly, I don't know, 3 to $5, you know, U.S. dollars, put it in, into context. And uh, this individual maybe makes $300 U.S. Dollars a year. So significant, you know, double-digit percentage of his income on this telephone. But for this, this interpreter, she was like, but Dan, like, he wouldn't be able to make money without it. Without it, he'd just be wasting his time. He wouldn't be able to sell a fish, know when they're going to be there to buy you know, when the market was actually going to happen. And I thought that was kind of perplexing. And, um, and then, you know, I, I have all kinds of questions about how do they charge the phone, you know, all that as well. And, and the guy ended up, he had an old car battery in his hut that he charges the phone off of. And so just engine ingenuity and just never assume that, you know, something's a luxury item. Sometimes it's a life sustaining item, right? And people will pay an exorbitant amount of their money to actually do that. And then I think just, you know, looking back at, you know, I'll tell one more just quick story and I've got a thousand. I mean, I've got some funny ones too. But um, I remember, you know, back to the computer lab, that little shipping container we did, I was sitting there and there's a little boy because there was an elementary school, a primary school, just, I don't know, not too far from where we were, from where the high school was. And he's sitting on my shoulders where, as I was logging online and onto this server that we had in there. And it dawned on me, I looked at him and I just out of the blue, I just said, you know, have you ever, and he spoke English really well. I said, have you ever 
uh, seen a picture of snow. They had no idea what I was talking about. And just like perplexed, like, no. And he's put his hand on my shoulder and kind of leaned his head on me, like looking over my, my shoulder on the screen. And so I went online. And I was telling him, I said, no, once in a while during the rainy season, in some parts of the world, it gets very cold and it freezes and it turns white and it covers the ground. And he's like, so confused. I pulled up pictures of snow. And this little boy's eyes, I mean, think about the world that was opened at that moment for this little kid, right? Never seen it, never heard of snow before. All of a sudden, it's like, wow, it's just amazing. And of course, we sat there for probably an hour and a half while I let all the smart technical guys install all the stuff. And I was pulling up pictures of this little boy. And the next picture I pulled was like, have you ever seen a polar bear? Of course, he'd never seen a polar bear. But it was almost like we took a trip to like a modern zoo on this computer and just opening up that kind of information to kids. It's just fantastic. You know, and there's, uh, you know, you know, I, I call it kind of a you know, moral imperative or this need that you have too. But, you know, we have to do this for the rest of the world if we really want to sustain it. I'll leave everyone with this challenge too. I work very closely with a couple of global competition companies, you know, that, that go out and crowdsource the world to solve the world's biggest problems. I often wonder how many problems could we solve if we had the brain power of the rest of the world to actually utilize, Right. I mean, what little boy looking over my shoulder one day might not find the cure for fill in the blank or might not find a way to actually reduce the carbon emissions in our environment, fill in the blank, all these problems that we have. You know, we just so many times just think like, oh, we've got to go to the to the solutions for people that we know or people that are connected or can communicate with us. But yet that little boy may have those answers. I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm always thinking to myself, like, who who are we leaving out from a, from just an overall just just benefit to to the world by not having their ideas or solutions or their art or their creativity or their musical talents, all of that as well. And and I think that that's something we've got to consider, you know, as a developed society, as we go out and start connecting people and getting them to participate. You know, I have to ask you, what's your advice for the little Daniels out there and Daniela's, of course, So all those people that are just inspired as you are and that have this, this consciousness, it's, it's about consciousness, right? It's, it's, I, I don't know. There's, there's this ship of people that I'm talking to that are so aware of our responsibilities in the world and for our future. You don't see that in everyone, unfortunately, but a lot of people, they feel this urge, they feel the need, but it's, it's, it's hard, it's complex, you know, it's basically trying to move mountains. But so if you have any advice, either how to start or, or what types of challenges or, or, I don't know, even being resilient, right? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good question, Maria. And, and I think, you know, the first thing is be aware, you know, and, and by the way, you don't have to be aware of what's happening in remote portions of Eastern Asia or anything like that, but, but be aware of what's happening around the corner from where you live. I mean, there are people all around us that have needs and wants and desires. It is being aware of, of our own environment, our own surroundings is, is really the first step. And from there, drive your curiosity, right? Dig into it. Why? Ask those questions as to why. And, and also I'll share this too. You know, I mean, for many years, all of us are trained of what success looks like. And our corporations are absolutely built around this, you know? And uh, generally, you know, it's the people that talk a lot, that are extroverts, that drive certain things, big drive big money for your corporations. And I'll challenge anyone with this, right? Whatever company you're working for right now, tell me who your previous CEO was five years ago. Kind of hard. 
Now go back in time even more 10 years ago, right? Don't know, you know, who won the Oscar and, in, in, you know, for, for whatever in 2015, don't know, don't know. Because like we, we, we focus on all of these things that we think are successful, that we think will give us like this utility of satisfaction if I could only do X, right? And yet in reality, it's a very temporary kind of satisfaction. And I would encourage people to do something that matters. And, um, you know, I will promise you this, you know, in your final days on this planet, you know, no one's going to be saying, hey, bring me that award one more time. You know, let me hug my Oscar. You're not going to do it. But what you will be doing is, is having what you left behind and what you're actually, you know, pro- progressing ahead to. And that's always investing in the lives of others. And um, it's a conscious effort. By the way, I'm not there. I'm not saying I'm like patting myself on the back or, you know, I'm better than anybody. I'm not. You know, it's like a progressive learning journey that I think we're all on. But we've got to get out of our own way sometimes. Like I said, I mean, if, if you never got the credit, would you still do it? Would you still be driving to, you know, you know, do these type of activities? And because there's not a lot of credit in there, you know, nonprofits don't make money for a reason. It's called nonprofit. right? So it's kind of difficult to measure your success on pure financial basis. And it's not only about not getting the credit, but when you're talking about bringing big, big companies together into the same cause, you have to forget the, the competitiveness as well. Right which sometimes seem to be the driving force, like the wrong driving force. Well, it is. And, and again, this comes back to, you know, I mean, again, with the Entity Project, you know, we don't demand that everything be built on Intel architecture, right? There's plenty of Intel architecture out there. You know, we'll have our play in there. But we have all kinds of different technological solutions, right? Is it a Chromebook? Is it PC-based? You know, I, I mean, who are the carriers? What's the carrier backhaul look like? Is it low-orbiting satellite now? Those things are coming. All these technologies and a lot of them do compete with each other. And I just ask people just to take a breath for a second and say out of 3.9 billion people, right? I'm sure there's room for your technology to play. If not, you probably shouldn't be in the business, right? So, I mean, it comes back like, you know, you don't have to win every, every community, every village with your specific perfect technology, you know? And, and that's what we're trying to do is be a curator of different ideas in different places. Look at the community and say, what's the best need for that community, from a connectivity and an application and a literacy perspective, then who are the right companies to actually play that part? And it differs uh, from time to time. Okay, so let's let's get into the technology space now. So after all, it's Future Hacker. <laughs> we eventually get there sometimes. So you have obviously involved in several projects around emerging technologies. And you're also especially, especially interested in when tech innovation is used in an inclusive way, which is all about all we've been talking about since we began the podcast. So I like, I'd love to cover some of the you know, neo-disruptive technologies out there, but regarding your view of its evolution, keeping the frame of being used in an inclusive way. And the reason that I usually, I always like to talk about that uh, is because, and still talking about education, right? I think that we're not having enough discussions when it comes to evolution of artificial intelligence and machine learning, when it's not being used with a diverse enough team behind that to keep repeating the same errors that we've been doing, right? So I don't know how we can keep the ethical evolution and we can keep aiming to a more inclusive society if you're not discussing that now as the technologies are being built. So I'd love your view on that. And please feel to use any specific technology. We can talk about robotics, deep learning, AI, whatever you like 
framing in a way of, of heading to a more inclusive future? Yeah, there's, there, there are a lot of questions in that, Maria. And, um, and again, a lot of these are my opinions, right? So not necessarily Intel's platform or N50's platform, but just some of, some of my experiences on this. I mean, certainly, you know, you talked about, you, you use the word AI and ethical, and along with that comes privacy, right? And doing it to enhance, not deter. And there's a lot that's still being sorted out with that. There really is. There are some great organizations out there that are, that are tackling that head on. I'm thinking AI for good, first and foremost, and some things that they're trying to do around AI actually bringing good into the world. And then you also mentioned like an inclusive, you know, kind of culture as well. And, you know, I think back again to what we're working on, and we have a massive issue in the tech space that I believe is, is this, you know, kind of tsunami kind of coming around the corner of just, you know, unskilled workers ready to go take on this AI revolution, right? And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of data points out there, you know, something around, I don't know, over 300 million global workers need to kind of change occupations as AI and technology evolves, if you think about it. I mean, go to your modern factory today. I mean, in Intel factories, you know, and there's a lot of automation going on there, right? So, you know, how do you, how do you take those workers and equip them, you know, and fill those skills gaps, right, to actually make sure that you're inclusive of that next generation, you know, and, and a lot of it comes through, you know, STEAM efforts that we're working on and, and, and trying to make sure that we're actually focusing on that. But, and then again, you know, there's a statistic I read the other day that said something like it's, it's sub 10%, you know, we talk about inclusion, right? You know, just in the U.S. alone of certain people groups represented in the tech workforce. And uh, we're currently working with um, diverse people groups here in the States and through just employee efforts and one-on-one mentoring to go out to those people groups and say, hey, you can be an engineer. Here's how you do it. And without that help, some of these, some of these kids will never know. And like even at Intel, one of, our, one of our goals, if you look at our corporate responsibility, we call it RISE, Responsible, Inclusive, Sustainable, and Enabling. And everything that Intel's an acronym, and that's another acronym we have, but it's easy to remember. But, you know, the, the global inclusion piece is we want to be the most inclusive company in the tech space by 2030, and I'm paraphrasing. So, you know, in order to do that, you can't start in 2029 and decide to go be there in 2030. Because that workforce today, my, my guess, is in secondary school at the latest. And we should be working with them now and investing in those kids and, that, and again, that diverse workforce to get those different viewpoints, those different ideas. And again, otherwise, we're going to do the same thing over and over again forever, and we won't continue to progress, right? But you get these different ideas and, and look at these diverse workforces and go in almost a one-on-one tutoring and mentoring. And I can tell you that these communities don't have, you know, college counselors. Private enterprise needs to help fill some of that gap if we want to solve this problem. You know, and going down there and saying, hey, find some of these kids that are stars in their early secondary education in high school and say, you can be an engineer and here's how you go do it. And let me help you. So I have to take that opportunity because we are, we are again, ending up talking about education, right? So do you believe that for us to be able to address this need and, you know, not having to count on the educational system as it's super outdated and, and I believe it's going to take a long time for, you know, the model to change and, and, and address a completely new different generation that is going to be more connected and have a completely different workforce and jobs that don't even exist. Do you think that the, the, the private world, like the, the big corporations should be getting involved on that now and today to actually be happy out their own future or still it, ha- it will have to be somehow joint forces, right? What, what's your thought about that? 
Yeah. And again, I remember corporations don't exist without humans. You know, it comes back to the human and the people and kind of that culture that you're establishing as well for people. And like I teach classes at ASU in the evenings, love it in the afternoons, love it. Try to bring an experiential kind of perspective to those classrooms. So it's not just, you know, here's the textbook says, not that that's wrong. It's okay. We have to fundamentally kind of change, you know, some of those experiential kind of kind of um, education environments that we have and making it make it where kids are not just learning, but thinking and contextually kind of driving out what the future could possibly look like, I think is critical. It's imperative to us. Should corporations be investing in education? Think of it this way. I mean, and again, I always come back to say, I mean, I got an AI certificate online through Coursera, right? It cost me like $99. It took me like six weeks. And I was just, I learned so much about AI and what I could actually go do. 20 years ago, that was impossible. I wouldn't have that knowledge, right? And so I, I look at that and say, you know, I mean, and so, so you've got corporations are investing in that. And LinkedIn Learning is another, you know, one that we use all the time, right? A lot of us are part of this and, you know, these digital worlds. And, and again, I would just encourage, if we're going to expand that, is how do you make those kind of education and content available for people all around the world in any, in any environment? And you're not going to stream, you know, a Coursera AI course to a rural village in Africa unless you have the right architecture in place, which is why we're, why we're doing what we're doing at the N50 Project. Because someday we want that ability to go do that, should this community want that. But yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of challenges around it. You know, there's a lot of challenges around privacy and what AI can and can't go do. There's some good organizations that are, I think, tackling the problem. I'm not sure where that's going to lead. Yeah. Then it's so, it was so lovely talking to you. And I'm, I'm wishing you like the best in your projects. N50 sounds so, so exciting and challenging. And, you know, anybody that is interested that listen to the, to those episodes, just make sure you go to n50n50project.org and check out. There is a contact form there. You can get in touch. And, you know, if you have any last words, it was just absolutely lovely having you with us today. Thank you so much. No, I, I appreciate what you're doing, Maria. Thanks for having me on. I love Future Hacker and uh, you know, I look forward to seeing you know, kind of what happens with, with, with this venture too. I'm, I'm super proud of just all your efforts and all you've done and this is great. Thank you. Thank you. Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future.